Hello and welcome to the RCP Medicine Podcast with me, Dr. Amy Burbridge. I'm an acute physician working in Coventry. And I'm Hussein Bashir. I'm a respiratory registrar in the southeast. And welcome to today's podcast. So, Hussein, I'm going to start with a case. Now, you know absolutely nothing at all about this and you are looking pretty scared and pretty nervous. But I promise it's not going to be too hard. Everyday occurrence. Go okay, ahead. you ready? So... This is a 36-year-old female who recently underwent bariatric surgery. She tried and failed to lose weight by weight loss and exercise and, you know, sort of normal regimes, but felt this wasn't working and the only way to lose weight was to have surgery. She travelled abroad for the surgery and had very little follow-up. And in fact, she said to me she only had 24 days sorry, 24 hours in hospital post-operation and then flew back home about three days later. So she didn't have any follow-up in the country where she had the procedure. Now, when I saw her, she arrived in the medical decisions unit and was diagnosed with pneumonia. And at the time we diagnosed with post-operative pneumonia. In addition to this, she had a very prolonged hospital stay in which she had a DVT. And that was a left-sided DVT. So she was actually got more and more unwell throughout her hospital stay. Of note, she wasn't given prophylactic clexane or anything when she'd initially had the operation. And she says that she can't remember having any injections, but she did wear stockings, the TED stockings, so the thromboembolic stockings she did wear for a few days. She said that throughout her hospital stay, and this is a prolonged stay now, her appetite had significantly decreased, which I guess you'd expect given that she'd had bariatric surgery, and she was also vomiting. And it was felt that the vomiting may again be due to the bariatric surgery, or the fact that actually she was just in hospital, she was fed up. And by day 26 of her hospital admission, The pneumonia was treated, the DVT was treated and she was on appropriate treatment. She developed a headache and she started to complain of some dizziness. Now I'm just going to stop there and I'm just going to ask you thoughts. Yeah, so very complex uh, history presentation. you're a bit hamstrung because the operation was abroad, so you don't know the in, sort of intricacies of whether any complications, peri procedure, pre or post. Um, but we're presuming if she left after 24 hours, she was at least mobile and, and fit enough to leave their hospital. I think 26 days in hospital is an awfully long time. Despite having the pneumonia treated, the DVT, she's on appropriate treatment. Is there something else going on here? Um, I'll just be honest and say the things that are going through my mind. So when you said headache, mm. I don't know why, but benign intracranial hypertension came into my excellent thought mind. Yeah, dizziness. So I was thinking about fluid status. So is she hypovolemic? Um, is she a bit institutionalized? So maybe actually hasn't been that mobilized. Um, mo- sorry, hasn't been that mobile around the hospital. Um, so maybe if the dizziness when she's standing up. And obviously she's had major surgery, mm. which has infinite complications already, both structurally. So was that the reason of causing her vomiting um, and metabolically as well? 
So thinking about electrolytes, to be fair, when you started the case, I was actually thinking, oh, is she going to ask me about refeeding syndrome or something <laughs> like that? So a very broad range of things. It'd be anything, couldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So she wasn't sleeping, which I guess you'd expect she's in hospital. You know, people often complain about not sleeping. She was exhausted. Again, could be because she's institutionalized. She's been in hospital for a long time and not mobile. And actually, a lot of this was put down to the hospital stay. And it wasn't really thought about much more. Oh, she'll get better. However, on day 29, she deteriorated even further. She was very, very confused. Does that change anything? Yes. So again, headache, dizziness, confusion. You think, is there a cerebral cause? Uh, you know, it's some kind of encephalopathy, meningitis. Want to think about drugs uh, or drug withdrawal. Had she, been, had she been taking something pre-op, um, but is now not on it anymore. With a bit of a respiratory slant. So we refer a lot of people for bariatric surgery because they've got sleep apnea. Um, has that been not treated? Did she have a machine, not been having it? Is she hypercapnic? Again, lots of systems, lots of things this could be. Um, but I suppose the acuity of the situation is a lot higher. You mm. can't just put this down to hospital stay. Why is a 36-year-old female uh, confused? Mm -hmm. So you go back and see the patient and you try to take a history. Going back to basics, trying to find out a little bit more about the headache, um, about the dizziness. Um, is she aware that she's confused? Does she have awareness? Is she disorientated? You ask the nursing staff on the ward, you ask the families of the patient and friends who've been coming to see her regularly and also the doctors who've been looking after her. It's very difficult to get a history from the patient. Very, very difficult. So most of the, the telling is now going to come from the examination. Examination was difficult because she was confused. Um, however, you do pick up that when she's walking around the ward, although it's difficult, she's not mobilising much when she is, she's ataxic. Okay. So she does have this broad-based gait, which wasn't noticed before. But in all honesty, nobody really probably looked at the gait anyway, but it is particularly ataxic right so you've got a patient now who's been vomiting a lot who's had a recent bariatric surgery very tired very weak some dizziness very strange sleeping habits in fact has been a lot more awake at night and a lot more sleepy in the day and able to concentrate and you notice now that she's ataxic a little bit more confused. And actually, when you look at her eyes, because you're really trying to examine her eyes and do a full examination to try and figure out what's going on, you think you spot nystagmus. Right. Okay. So even more points towards a neurological cause. So has she had some cerebellar infarct um, or bleed? Um, so I want to scan her head. Yeah, so that's what I was going to go into next. What are you going to do? This lady is in front of you. And in all honesty, you don't really have a clue what's going on. Yeah, so it's, I, I presume if she's confused and not very cooperative. Not very cooperative at all. Fluctuating. Yeah, I think you want to get an urgent scan. And you're probably going to need some support if she is fluctuating in her cooperation. 
because um, it's a delicate scan looking at the cerebellum anyway. I'd be cautious about giving her any drugs um, because that might exacerbate the situation. Um, but yeah, certainly getting some more support in terms of manpower. Okay. Would you do a CT scan, MRI scan? Oh, you caught me out there. I think MRI scans are probably more... Um, uh, it's probably more suitable for looking uh, at cerebellar infarcts. Yep, absolutely. If you can get one. Yeah. Um, if you can't, then you have to go for a CT head yeah. with contrast, possibly. Yeah, yeah I mean, um, one of the things that, given the fact that she's had a DVT, she's been immobile and she's overweight, you'd also want to think about a sinus venous thrombosis. Yep. So that might be worth, you know, you might have to do um, a venogram a CTV or an MRV to make sure that that's not one of the causes. Okay, so that could also cause these type of symptoms. So yeah, you do a scan, a head scan. What else? Any other blood tests that you might like to do? So what anticoagulation is she on? So she's actually on direct oral anticoagulation. Okay. Um, I'm presuming if she's on therapeutic doses of it, then um, you assume she's compliant and, mm-hmm. and is on the right dose. So then actually if she's on a DOAT, the clotting screen is not that valuable um fbc so you particularly want to look at the platelet count um renal function can she have the ct with contrast um the i mean she's had major gut surgery so you want to do all the electrolytes including calcium phosphate magnesium uh infection markers are given um these are all the blood tests i do okay so What I want you to think about now is you've got a patient confused, ataxic, and nystagmus. Alcohol. Really good thought. She's not a drinker. Not drinking any alcohol. But what what's your line of thinking? Uh, It's just that triadus thing. Is it versicas and corsicoffs? Vernicas and cuffalopathy. Vernicas. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. But it's not that. Why? Why isn't it that? pass it is that it is that <laughs> okay explain more so do you know i'm, I'm really impressed that you got there. i'm sort of dumbstruck not okay. for the right reasons though. <laughs> so she does have vernicas encephalopathy and the reason is that we always associate vernicas encephalopathy with high alcohol intake. However, we know that patients who've had bariatric surgery are also at a risk of developing Wernicke's encephalopathy. That's very interesting. It is, isn't it? So there are a lot of non-alcohol related causes of Wernicke's encephalopathy. We've mentioned GI surgery, hyperemesis gravidarum. Yep. Starvation, anorexia nervosa, malnutrition and malignancies. So there's a huge number of other causes of Wernicke's encephalopathy that we don't ever really think about. Other risk factors, we know alcohol, chronic use of alcohol, poor diet, malnourishment, and decompensated liver disease are all risk factors. But we never really think about bariatric surgery as being one. There is a criteria for the diagnosis of Wernicke's encephalopathy, which is called the Keynes criteria. So the diagnosis of Wernicke's encephalopathy should be based on the Keynes criteria. So you need, the patient must demonstrate two of the following four signs. Dietary deficiencies, so weight loss, poor diet, malnourishment, 
Eye signs, they may have an ophthalmoplegia, a nystagmus, or very rarely a gaze palsy. Cerebellar dysfunction, so we know they can have ataxia. They can also have past pointing and dystidokinesia, and also altered mental state. So disorientation, confusion, and in very, very bad later signs of Wernicke's encephalopathy, they can actually develop coma. So if you have two of those four things, that will lead you to a diagnosis of Wernicke's encephalopathy. However, we do know that obviously, as discussed, patients who drink high alcohol levels are more prone to it. What is Wernicke's encephalopathy? Enlighten me. Okay, so we know that Wernicke's encephalopathy is due to thiamine deficiency. So thiamine is stored in the liver um, and it's very water soluble and it lasts for about 18 days within the liver. This therefore highlights that if we haven't got a liver function or we've got decompensated liver disease, we're not going to be able to store thiamine and therefore our reserves are going to be low. Thiamine is used and metabolized to thiamine pyrophosphate, which is a cofactor for key enzymes in the Krebs cycle. Gosh. So I'm just going to go back to medical school years now, or the tricarboxylic acid cycle. So this is really important because it helps to break down carbohydrate, which releases energy into the system. So the Krebs cycle is how we generate energy. And thiamine is a key co-product, sorry, cofactor for the enzymes involved in this. So we don't have any thiamine. We have decreased efficacy of the Krebs cycle and decreased energy. That's why she was tired. Absolutely. It also produces neurotransmitters, GABA and glutamic acid. And it's also involved in lipid metabolism and myelin production. So if you can imagine you don't have any of this going on, you lack thiamine, you lose these processes, you get poor energy, which is accounted by the apathy and the, the fatigue. Because you lose myelin, you get non-inflammatory brain lesions developing and also neuronal death. Because neurons, brain production has very, very high metabolic demands. If you're not able to have energy, you are unable to produce and meet these metabolic demands. You may also get lactic acidosis, particularly focal lactic acidosis in the brain, and you can get edema, cerebral edema, which can eventually lead to coma. So it's very important to pick up Wernicke's encephalopathy very early on in the onset. We know that thiamine is absorbed in the GI tract. People who misuse alcohol, obviously, um, can have an inflamed bowel and not absorb thiamine. Bariatric surgery, they also have a limited ability to absorb thiamine. Therefore, they can develop Wernicke's encephalopathy. Wow. Does that all make sense? Yeah, not a really nice refresher, actually, and uh, particularly the Krebs cycle. Didn't think yes. I'd, I'd hear about that again. Um, did you, or in these cases then, is a CT head not really needed or is it done to rule out other causes? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You've got a patient who's acutely confused. It's probably, you need to rule out that common things are common. So we know that she's had a DVT, rule out thrombosis, although it's not really common to be honest. Um, She could have had a cerebral infarct. She's been in hospital for a very long amount of time. Um, She could have had some infection. So other things you might want to think about are lumbar punctures. 
You know, is this an encephal is this a viral encephalopathy that you need to rule out? So you need to rule out other causes of the confusion and not just jump to Wernicke's as a diagnosis. Okay. Um, other things that you need to think about as well are magnesium levels. So often patients who have a high alcohol intake or bariatric surgery have very low magnesium levels. Magnesium is a cofactor for thiamine. Therefore, you have to treat the low magnesium. If you don't treat the low magnesium, you have impaired utilization of the thiamine. And therefore, you get these problems. So you have to treat the low magnesium and the low thiamine. Now, low magnesium will happen because of decreased dietary intake. And also, particularly in individuals who abuse alcohol, they have a lot of renal magnesium wasting. And if you've had some diarrhea and vomiting like our lady had, she's also going to probably have a low magnesium level from that as well. So really key things. And just another question about the thiamine. So you're just doing that as a simple blood test if it comes back low. Can you check thiamine levels? No, I don't think you can. Not routinely. It's not something we, to be honest, it's not something I've ever done. Um, It probably is available. But um, remember that Wernicke's is more a diagnosis, a clinical diagnosis. So the history, the examination, you've ruled out other causes of the confusion. And then you can think about Wernicke's as a possible diagnosis. Yep. Okay. You think this lady's got Wernicke's encephalopathy, which you rightly said. What are you going to do? Um, Got to treat it. Um, okay, excellent. How are we going to treat it? So you want to replace, so if there's a magnesium deficiency, replace the magnesium. Um, mm-hmm. With thiamine, you can replace it parentally. Yes, absolutely. So I've just said that this lady is unwell and probably isn't, her bowel probably isn't absorbing well. So oral thiamine is not appropriate. So I'm going to give her intravenous vitamin B and intravenous vitamin C in the form of Paprinex. Okay, so there's a very good, um, although quite brief guideline released by NICE, and it's a clinical guideline, CG100, alcohol use disorders, diagnosis and management of physical complications, last updated in 2017. And it looks at how we manage Wernicke's encephalopathy. And it says that any patient with suspected Wernicke's encephalopathy, you must give Paprinex, two vials, three times a day, for up to five days. And they actually say for a minimum of five days or until Wernicke's encephalopathy is excluded. When that's been given, you must give them oral thiamine treatment after this. Okay. And that will often be 50 to 100 milligrams BD or TDS, depending on what the local guidelines say. Okay. Also important to note here that any patient who presents to hospital with known high alcohol intake, they are at high risk of developing Wernicke's encephalopathy. Use this as an opportunity to look at their alcohol intake, to counsel them on Wernicke's and to prescribe them. If they're staying in, Paprinex. If they're being discharged, think about giving them thiamine replacement. It's really, really important. And how quickly we do expect her symptoms to improve? So it depends on the severity of the encephalopathy. So if you've picked the encephalopathy up quite early on and you give the thiamine, actually you can reverse the symptomatology quite quickly. However, if you don't diagnose the Wernicke's in time, because to be fair, 
it's not a common diagnosis in somebody who is a low alcohol drinker. What can happen? What can develop? What can they develop? So they can develop Korsakoff's. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, syndrome, is it called? Or phenomenon? Yeah, Korsakoff syndrome. Who was Korsakoff? Oh, I have a feeling you're going to tell me. <laughs> Korsakoff was a Russian psychiatrist who first turned Korsakoff psychosis. And if untreated, Korsakoff's actually is a chronic condition. So p- patients with Korsakoff's will have severe memory impairment. It's often anterior grade, so they are unable to store new memories. Some patients can have retrograde amnesia, so they can't recall old memories. They can be disorientated. They may have emotional changes and be very apathetic. And also they may confabulate. So they really believe that something's happened, but it's just made up or gobbledygook or, you know, they're absolutely determined that they did meet Jason Donovan, but really they, they didn't. <laughs> it's so important, therefore, that we pick up, diagnose and treat Vernicas with Pabronex, two vials, TDS, for the minimum of five days. Yeah. What else is in Pabronex apart from vitamin B? Oh, uh, there's a, some more electrolyte replacements in there. Electrolyte? Are you just making things yes. up? Okay, excellent. <laughs> um, I don't know. Think about the colour. So it's yellow. Yes. Um, Yellowy orange? Yep. Okay, so Pabronex, you've got your vitamin B1 and you have your vitamin C, which is your ascorbic acid. Okay, so going back to our patient, a 34-year-old lady with a very prolonged hospital stay who developed vernicas and cephalopathy. You've given Pabronex appropriately and she's improving. Who do you want to involve in the care of this patient? So going forwards, definitely dietitians. Excellent. Um, so you want to make sure that they, the patient is educated about what dietary intake they need uh, on a daily basis. For someone who's been in that long, they also need a bit of a functional assessment. So mm-hmm. are they going to be able to cope uh, or cook their required diet in their home environment? So occupational therapy. Um, if she has been immobile, then a quick physio assessment as well. You're already going to have an anticoagulation clinician following them up. Yeah, and, and then probably long-term follow-up with gastro, I would suspect. Yeah, I mean, one of the things while she's still in hospital, you'd want to, you mentioned it earlier on actually, is refeeding syndrome. So certainly while you've got your dietitian there, you'd also want to make sure you monitor her magnesium, her phosphate, calcium. You might want to check her uric acid levels. So sort of keeping a close eye on those as well. Phosphate, um, really important to look at that. Um, just as an aside as well, um, you did mention drugs um, and looking at the drug chart, but another cause of um, her confusion could have been um, drug use, so illicit drug use. So it's always worth doing a toxicology screen as well. Okay, so yeah, I agree with you about who's doing their monitoring. If she, you need to basically look at her every day from her um, confusion, confabulation perspective and a cognitive function and coordination, look clearly at signs of clinical deterioration. If there isn't any improvement, you may want to involve a neurologist or a psychiatrist. Okay, so it's always worth just having that in the back of your mind about who appropriate to involve. Obviously, social workers may need to be involved in discharge, like you said, in occupational therapy. It's worth thinking about a mental state examination 
mini mental state examination to make sure that she's improving. If she does develop Korsakoff's or your patient or a patient does, then they would probably need to be under a psychiatrist. Absolutely. And on discharge, she must be sent home on thiamine to continue that replacement of that, that, that we definitely need. So in conclusion, Wernicke's encephalopathy, it's a serious, acute, as we saw in this patient, neuropsychiatric syndrome, most commonly seen in patients who are alcohol dependent. However, it can also be seen rarely in patients who have had bariatric surgery. And certainly in the last few years, I've had an increasing number of patients presenting with complications of bariatric surgery, wound healing problems, infection, pneumonia, blood clots, or in this case, Wernicke's encephalopathy. So it's really important that we do bear that in mind. So give me three key learning points. Uh, yeah, so lovely to have a recap of uh, what Wernicke's encephalopathy is uh, and Korsakoff's. Um, the, the sort of things to look out for, uh, you broke it down and what I always thought was a triad, but actually I've got four points written down, dietary deficiency, eye size like ophthalmoplegia, ataxia and altered mental state. Um, thank you for bringing that, a really, really interesting case. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the RCP Medicine Podcast. If you want to get in touch, email us at podcasts at rcplondon.ac.uk or tweet us at RCP London. And we look forward to hearing from you. Goodbye. <laughs>